This call is being recorded. Okay, we're live with Andrew Hathaway. Would you mind introducing yourself a little bit? Um, so, yeah, Andrew Hathaway. I'm a teacher. I've been teaching at Richford High School for the last 14 years, 20 years, um, and pretty avid reader. And uh, I've coached a lot, and I'm not sure um, what else could I say. Uh, I think that's... Talk about maybe how you and Katie know each other. Or Katie oh, could okay. do that as well. Yeah, yeah. He was my social studies teacher and my cross-country coach, as you mentioned before. Yeah, and so yeah, Katie in uh, ninth grade, and then again in twelfth uh, grade humanities. Yeah. Um, and um, gave her a special project when she was in uh, when she was a freshman, trying to get her to sort of figure out a a line on evidence, and uh, arriving at conclusions, and uh, that that turned out that turned out to be pretty interesting. Um, and who who was that? Uh, it was Descartes. We were we were trying to we were trying to yeah, Rene Descartes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Still have that. Uh, still have the uh, project hanging up on the wall in my classroom. Nice, the poster with the um, puzzle pieces. Yeah. Nice. So, so uh, yeah. At that point, I think uh, as as a teacher, I was really trying to come to grips with. Uh, that project, I think, was like sort of reductionism and the limits of reductionism, mm -hmm. and um, how we we sort of break things down too much, and we don't put them back together very much. Right. Uh, which I guess uh, Vonnegut uh, is is sort of part of Vonnegut's point, or maybe part of his. It's I see it in uh, Mother Night, but. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, for this episode, we read Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut. Could you tell us maybe a bit about um, how you came across this book and why you chose to read it the first time you read it? Okay, so, well, there's a, that's a, another tieback. I don't, for some reason, I must have been looking for a book, and I asked you, Katie, and you said, have you read any Vonnegut? And uh, I said, no. So your pops dropped off uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Right. So yeah. So I read that and I liked it. Um, and so then I think I read The Sirens of Titan. Mm -hmm. And I liked that. And then another friend recommended uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Mm -hmm. That's one that. of his I haven't read yet. And I liked that. So the, and then uh, I was sitting in a meeting. In, uh, in an English teacher's room, and there was a copy of Mother Night, and so I picked that up, and and I read that, um, and it's actually it's my I think I like the best um, of all of all. Wow. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's I think it's a lot different than especially the Sirens of Titan or uh, Slaughterhouse Five. It's not as sci-fi, but uh, right. It's, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this one definitely deals with a lot of very serious topics and less 
sci-fi-esque than say Slaughterhouse-Five or The Sons of Titan. Um, so when you were reading this book, what sort of theme or idea stood out to you the most while you were reading it? Um, well, I mean, the first time I, I started laughing in the book it was at the beginning. Um, sort, sort of, I mean, in the prologue, Vonnegut says, um, there's a moral to this book. There's not a moral to any of my books, but the moral is be careful who you pretend to be. And so, I mean, that's sort of s sitting there. And then the first time, like, so at the beginning, I'm reading, and I think it's the second guard um, uh, who's guarding him, who's guarding uh, Campbell in the prison in Israel. And he starts talking about how, uh, I think the guy's name is Arvad um, Kovos or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a Jew in Hungary, and he got his papers forged, and he became an SS guy. And so in the description, he's having a conversation with Campbell in jail. And um, I think that more or less he explains how there was a leak. And he starts, this guard starts talking about the leak. And the look on his face is just one of disdain because mm -hmm. someone was leaking information. But, but of course, it was him. Like, he was the leak. <laughs> so I was just just laughing at, you know, there's this person as um, a spy for the Allies. And, but when he's talking about the leak, you know, he still, he can't help but act the part of the anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he is really became what he pretended to be and i think that's like the full version of the quote is that we become what we pretend to be right yeah right so be careful who you pretend to be yeah, yeah that's, that's... i was thinking yeah. maybe we should do a brief synopsis of just the main character's role in the story that makes sense so yeah yeah so he's born in America, but then moves to Germany with his family and ends up just living there for the rest of his life. And he's a playwright. Uh, he's very successful. He's married a beautiful actress. And then somewhere along the lines, a U.S. spy tries to recruit him and get him to administer secret messages into his radio program mm -hmm. and to try to convince him to climb the Nazi ladder. Because before... He got this prestigious radio position. He was more or less apolitical. He didn't really write anything about politics. He wrote like love stories about good and evil and about good prevailing and uh, mm -hmm. really fluffy stuff that has nothing to do with the Nazis. But he ends up doing it and he, he's just really loved by the Nazis. They love everything he does. And he doesn't even tell his wife that he's a spy because he's such a good spy. So he's mm -hmm. kind of pretending to be a Nazi. And even though deep down he's administering secret messages through like coughing or sneezing or something, and he doesn't even know what he's doing, but he's assured that what he's doing is helping the allies. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to add that in there as far as the being who you pretend to be thing, because that's kind of the major moral conundrum of the story is that 
he's not happy with what he's done. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that leads to a big question for the reader as you're reading it, is do you feel that Howard W. Campbell Jr. is a good person or a bad person, depending on his actions and the circumstances that he was in? I don't know. How do you guys feel about Howard Campbell Jr. as a character? Well, so I, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's interesting to point out that he states that he always knows when he's lying. He can always tell right. the truth. Um, and I think it's fairly clear that not many of the other characters can tell the difference when they're lying. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So they're saying what, what needs to be said so they can get the approval of the people around them. Um, or you know, the approval inside their own minds. I think he's, he, he makes that point pretty clear in, in, in a couple of different parts of the book. But but Campbell, um, like he knows that he's playing this game. Yeah. Whereas some other people, like the dentist, uh, Lionel Jones or Lionel, however you say his name, that guy is basically just insane, right? Like he's right. not... He's not aware that <laughs> what he's doing is terrible. He thinks it's actually the best thing to do. It's almost worse to be the person who's who knows what they're doing is wrong and does it anyway than it is to be the lunatic who's just so out of his mind. And yeah, know, that's I, a, a good I, distinction to make, though. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, that's that's. I mean, the book is pretty dark in that regard. Mm -hmm. Pretty um, and but like you're like okay, so you know what? What is the difference? I mean, uh, a fellow teacher is like, well, I read the book, but I hated the ending. And I don't know how you, I don't know how you feel about uh, revealing endings, but I like I was like, I don't see how you can end that book any other way. Right? Yeah. No, we can talk about uh, the ending to the book. Um, definitely, because it kind of tells us. Um, or assures us, I guess, that Howard Campbell is honest and has meant what he said throughout the book. He was a reliable narrator because at the end, he doesn't feel that justice was served and that he's still alive. So he has to serve justice uh, himself uh, by killing himself. Yeah, I, I think the most pivotal moment, maybe it's better to ask you, what do you think the most pivotal moment in the book is? Where? Or he kind of so, comes to grip, grips with what's happened. So, well, I think the part that I re that really like hit me the hardest was when he starts talking about the totalitarian mind and the gears and the brain. Yes. And how you know some of the gears get wound, get ground, um, wore off. So, like, I mean, if you're thinking of the the brain as a set of gears, like it's not running correctly, except for when the gears. You know the different the different gears are um, little splines are matched up, but then there's a bunch that are not matched up because they've been worn off, uh, presumably by people lying or uh, you know um, behaving in ways that are just in their own best interest, um, you know, not faithful to reality. And so, like like that part of the like I liked the book. I mean, it was it was dark, um, mm -hmm. 
And I, but like when I read that part and he's just describing this, okay, so this is the totalitarian mind. Here's how all these people that should not like one another, but they like one another. Um, and they, they can't see the contradictions that like are so obvious. Um, so it's sort of, you know, so then you just, so then I just go back and I go, okay, so where's, where's all the, you know, what's happening to people's minds that sort of wears the gears out. It's like a sort of mass hypnosis or conditioning and it might even be analogous to just our modern day (laughs) political climate of alternative facts or fake news or people trying to just, you know, embed ideas into us almost uh, without us choosing to take them in. Well, that section um, of the book is where he talks about the teeth and the missing teeth was a section that kind of clarified a lot of things for me in terms of understanding the mindset of a lot of the other characters and how he states that some people are born without these teeth. They just never grow in um, or some are stripped away by I think he says by history or by circumstance, but he does make sure to mention that he, Howard Campbell, had never tamp- had never purposefully tampered with his own set of teeth. So that's interesting yeah. as well. Um, go ahead, Alex. Like, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, how many teeth did he tamper with through his propaganda or the you know the radio show? Uh, affected so many people so deeply and i was going to say for me the most uh, pivotal moment was when he goes to visit his father-in-law and his father-in-law pretty much says hey i pretty much thought you were a spy the whole time but now i just don't care anymore because i know that you've served us more than the enemy and he goes on to say that all of the things that he really believes to be true uh, come from quotes from his show or his segments rather and yeah, I think at that moment I, I was starting to wonder, like, yeah, what good is this guy really doing if he's convincing so many people of, of things that he doesn't believe? Himself? Right, and I, I thought there's a pretty interesting part there um, when he's in that same conversation, I think, um, or like right after when um, Campbell says something about he's thinking about Noth, who's his father-in-law, and his father-in-law was the chief of police, I think, of Berlin, and like his his uh, tech his techniques and his faithfulness to sort of thing evidence to you know decide who's a criminal and who's not was impeccable. Um, and so, but then when he would turn people over to the uh, um, judicial process in Nazi Germany at the time, like they didn't care about any of that. And and like Noth never even thought about it. Like it didn't matter to him that the judicial system was, you know, biased to you know, you know, basically yeah, one of one of those periods in history where it's so biased you can't miss it. Um, and and then I think he also in that piece he's talking about how Noth can't distinguish between the broken vase and the slave. Who he whacks around because she dropped the vase, right? And like he can't see 
the contradictions in this behavior. Right, he's trying to instruct her about how to, how to handle things delicately. And meanwhile, he's... <laughs> yeah, the, the human life is the most precious item, you could argue. Yeah, and in terms and, of when he mentions that, or um, when Noth mentions that he's done more to help the Germans than to help their enemies, that kind of, you know, has, is a turning point for um, for Howard Campbell as well. But earlier in the in the novel, his friend, who seemed to be his friend, George Kraft, mentioned to him something that uh, his personal belief was that in the end, after they've all died, they will be judged historically on what they created. So anyone looking back will sort of only know him for what he created. Right, and not right. many people know that he's even doing this at all. He said there's like three people. There's the guy who recruited him, uh, maybe another person, and then like FDR. Yeah. Even right. his wife doesn't know that he's a spy. And it was kind of weird. I mean, how can you be so absolutely in love with someone that's just in full support of the Nazis? Meanwhile, you don't feel that yourself. That was something that was hard to understand for me. Mm-hmm. Um. So I guess, like, as a, as a teacher, or maybe, like, as a historian, I, I mean, I guess I often wonder, I'm like, what's, sort of, what's going on, and what are some of the, some of the gears that are making things occur, and mm-hmm. at some point in time, I think, like, if you look at really exaggerated situations, then you can see some problems that are fairly easily distinguishable, like, you know, the Nazis, obvious um and then and then if you scale it back you can see it in other places as well or scale it down when it's not quite so exaggerated so like harold i mean he uses the word uh schizophrenia at some point like it's this the fact that you can pee you know two completely different people in two different settings or situations um I mean, I, I think you have to, you know, like, so how does that happen? Right, and there's no simple answer to that. Like you were saying at the beginning, we can't really, we can't really have one explanation for the despicable behavior. I mean, it's it's really uh, <laughs> a huge problem, I think. I, I don't know. I don't understand a lot of it myself. It gives me a weird feeling reading stuff like this because it doesn't seem too long ago. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think I think the novel poses a lot of questions like that but doesn't necessarily answer them because perhaps, like you, you said, Alex, there's multiple answers or we don't have an answer yet. And I think that's it ends the way that it does. So, so like, what... Um, So if I go, you know, sort of out of this text and I go to the end of the Sirens of Titan, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm sort of just looking, you know, for, for the clues that Vonnegut's leaving, um, sort of at the end of the Sirens of Titan, he sort of makes this point that, you know, the only point, the only, re- the only thing that's, that we're really supposed to do here 
is love the people around us. Of course, they're all stuck on this on this uh, moon, right, in outer space, mm-hmm. and that, and like they're alone there, and they don't even know that. And then, if you sort of move back to this story, you can see, I think that that um, Howard Campbell and his wife Helga, like they're they are in love, um, but like then they can't see the. You know, he talks about their their nation of two, yeah. um, but then like when when he's um, when he steps out of that, right, and he becomes this Nazi propagandist, like they don't they don't even question it. They don't they don't see they don't see the contradictions. Um, and mm-hmm. that, and so, like to me. I guess I'm like, what, what are the what are the thought processes that we do when we're trying to make meaning of trying to make meaning to that sort of exposes the contradictions that don't need to be there? I mean, on some level, there's always going to be contradictions, um, especially if you try to talk l- larger. Um, I don't know where that's going to be clear, but uh, so when Katie was in class, like I. Especially as a senior, we talk a lot about qualifying your claims. Right. Like anytime you have an absolute claim, you're basically making a you're, you're basically making a big general statement. And if you don't qualify it, like it's it's really a problem. Um, but once you start qualifying your claims, you start to realize I think that there's more than one perspective, more than one way to look at things. Definitely, and this book is the epitome of that because it makes you consider um, the circumstances and the mindset of people of the Nazi party, people who are in the Nazi party, who everyone pretty much just considers evil, period. And there's no qualifier on that. And so then we go, why are they evil? Mm-hmm. Like and I and I go okay. So why are they evil? And I think it's because to to some degree, like they they take this single perspective. There's only one race that matters, and we should get to control everybody. Which really, I mean, it's so. I mean, they just brainwash themselves. I mean, Alex, I think referred to that er- earlier, right? This sort of conditioning effect yeah there's a really interesting article i just sent to katie the other day about dehumanization and uh, it's written by psychologist paul bloom at yale and it's typically something that people talk about uh, when they're talking about prejudice Uh, prejudices are racism you try to dehumanize your the victims and you try to say okay well you're not human so you might you might call someone who's messy and, and eats too much a pig, mm-hmm. and the idea is that you're trying to strip away their humanity. But realistically, if you're talking to a pig, you wouldn't speak English because you know they're not going to understand you. So, uh, I think Paul Bloom's argument is that it's actually worse. It's not that we think these people aren't human; it's that we we know they're human and we know how to make them feel bad, <laughs> and it's just even darker uh, than what the definition of it appears to be at face value. But I'm not sure that plays too much of a role in the book. 
Um, well, like, if a person, like, if a person is a pig, like, we've now just, we've globalized that because they eat too much, right? And what a qualifier would do would be to start to suggest that the way they're eating makes them look like a pig because now I've qualified it. And then I might wonder why. Why are they eating that way? Um, but just to, once you globalize it that way, and as you said, dehumanize them, now you're above them, and you can justify your behavior to do what you want. So, I mean, it, the Nazis yeah. are more, Okay, so it, the reason for uh, the depression is the Jews. Like, they're the cause of our problems. Um, not like, oh, okay, so like if like any rational thinker goes, okay, uh, the reason for the Great Depression is the Jews. Okay, so where's the evidence for that? Because it's a global claim. And then, like, and then, like, why is this a convenient answer for the Germans to make? Because they're, they're clearly biased, and they're not actually trying to understand their own bias. It's just easy to point the finger, make yourself feel better, and then go about your continuing to make yourself feel better and uh you know proving it well look now we're going to destroy them and now you become the judge and the jury you're you're, you're the you're the judge of the jury the executioner and all of it right and that's sort of one of the the missing teeth you could say is people believing such claims without any evidence to back it up yeah not critically inspecting the ideas they're being fed and yeah just accepting them and not only accepting them, but taking pride in them. You know, the fact yeah. that all the atrocities that were committed weren't done unwillingly. Like some people actually enjoyed what they're doing. And uh, I, don't, I don't know the name of the particular painting or photograph, but there's, it's very popular where it's a Nazi Germany and there's some Nazis on break and they're like eating grapes or something. And they just look totally content with like what they're doing. And there's like dead bodies all around them and they're just living their life as if nothing's wrong. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah d definitely back to that schizophrenia, which I'm not sure I agree with the kind of the use of that language. I think clinically it means something a lot different, but I, I think he is definitely pointing out the cognitive dissonance or, if anything, like a split personality disorder or something. You're not you're not really living in reality, right? You have two different perceptions of, like what's real. I don't know. Y yes, yeah. I I think that's you know, um, so. The point, well, the, I think there's two points there that I can see. Like, the first one is, um, oh, I lost it. The second one is the schizophrenia piece. Well, I think what he's talking about there, I mean, he, he wrote this in whatever, 1960-something. So it was like 20 years after. So, like, the way he sort of uses that phrase isn't the way we would use it today. Right. It's not like a voice right. in your head. Uh, trying to convince you that aliens are watching you or something. It's, right. Well, I mean, I the think... Disconnection. Yeah, like my, from my perspective, like they one, one easy way to look at it would be, and this is where I would say if it's interesting to look at exaggerations and then scale them back. Uh, people have thoughts that are not true, but they believe them, right? Mm -hmm. And like it may be really exaggerated in, in, in someone who's struggling with um, sort of some chemical reactions in their brain, which we would today call schizophrenia, same as, but like much more delicately. 
but like he's sort of saying like these people have thoughts in their heads they're not true and they believe them mm-hmm. um and i think that's Im- Im- important to note um i don't know so uh, what can someone do if they're let's say i'm on the extreme end of the uh, spectrum i've been listening to Howard Campbell Jr.'s radio show, and every day I wake up and I, I'm just really happy to be a Nazi. What would that person have to do to dispel their illusion of the world? What would they have to do to be like, you know what, maybe killing Jews isn't such a great thing, and you know, maybe I don't, I don't know. Like, how do you get from, how do you cure that, or how do you remedy that problem of kind of being tricked by your thoughts? Um. So, I mean, I, for, from my perspective, um, uh, how does it like? Yeah, how do you, how do you start questioning your own thoughts, right? And yeah. then, and then, um, so I think you have to. I think you have to be able to distinguish between assumptions and what your assumptions are based on um and once you or your you know your thoughts and what your thoughts are based on and then um i mean for me i guess it's it's personal like my my father had some pretty serious uh mental health issues so like for me i'd be like oh well i don't want that to happen to me so got to actually like go in and turn around instead of just looking out my eyes i have to i guess you know sort of go outside and look back in and go okay so why why do you think that you know what are you basing it on um why is it good for you to have that thought even though and 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 why would it be bad for other people so this is a convenient bias right um and I mean, I I would argue that kids do it fairly well um, already, and that um, one time I was I was teaching a lesson on perspectives, and a student wanted to know like she was worried is this is this right is this right, and I was like yeah I can see what your thinking is. Coincidentally, it was a it was a little piece on World War II, and it was on uh, casualties. Um, and then I said to her, "Probably you don't you don't feel comfortable right now doing this because too often people talk as if there's a single perspective." And to my to my amazement, she she was uh, she said, "Yeah, that's so confusing." <laughs> right, and so like she was already struggling with this. Like people are talking like, and I think that's a single qualifier um or an absolute qualifier this is this is the way it always is and kids are like wrestling they're like wait wait a minute wait a minute but that's not what i'm seeing um and that reminds me of uh what i wanted to say before alex um so people they listen to the the radio broadcast right and so they all start to believe that the Nazis are better. And so you have this, you know, massive delusion um, that they're all sharing. 
it's all propped up. They're all convincing one another, which is probably maybe, you know, sometimes a problem with Facebook, right? If other people like my posts, then it must make it more true when it doesn't actually make it more true. And then after the fall and the Allies beat the Nazis, now what do all these people argue? Well, that's what I was ordered to do. You can't blame me. Right? Like was, I was I had to I had to do what I was told. Um and sort of doing what you're told like that's where a single perspective only really works really well, I think, if if you if you have like this hierarchical society where you know you have to listen to everyone above you. Yes, it does. And that kind of brings up a question that I had about Howard Campbell and how he started doing the uh, Nazi propaganda over the radio was, did he do it because he was someone who was bigger than him in authority asked him to do it? Or did he feel like he had to do the job or was he doing it solely to, to help America and anyone else who was an enemy to Germany? I think his reasoning behind it is pretty important. Um, I'm not sure what his exact reasoning was. Yeah, it seemed like he, beforehand he didn't really want anything to do with it. Right. So, I guess the text would suggest to me that he's talking about he gets to act. Right? Mm-hmm. He's a man of the theater, so this is this is tremendous. Like This is a tremendous opportunity for someone who's interested in acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another piece in the text um, where he and uh, his blue fairy godmother, or whatever the guy's name is, I can't remember, who the guy who recruited him, right, starts talking about. So why why do why do spies do it? And and the I think the answer was something along the lines of it's an irresistible way to go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's the whole world. Like that's all. Like if the world's at war, I mean, it's collective insanity to a large degree, anyway. So now here's this other way to do this in an irresistible fashion um, to play both sides. Um, and I've not, actually, that makes me think. Like if you get to play both sides like that, then you really. I mean, it sort of changes what's going on, right? You can justify you can justify anything. Right. You could justify possibly either either side of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's kinda of weird the way he uses these really extreme examples, such as the dentist or like the black uh forget his name, the, the fear of uh, of Harlem or whatever. Like he uses these really extreme uh, examples just to point out like, okay, I know this is absurd. What is happening right here is insane. And he makes it very explicit that he he wasn't in in any way swayed by their ideas. But he, uh, at the same time, he was also very conscious that like, wow, what the hell is happening to these people? And yeah, why are they this way at the same time? I don't know. I don't want to get into it too much, but you know what? <laughs> Where does free will come into this, and uh, to what, what degree of agency do some of these people have that are already kind of pushed towards one way from their just the fact that they were born in a certain place, or maybe that their dad was like a, a huge Nazi commander or something? 
Mm-hmm. And and he sort of makes that uh, point, Vonnegut does, from the perspective of Campbell, that if he had been born in Germany and been brought up that way, he probably would have just thought that way. Right. 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 So, like, I, I think your point on uh, free will is, like, you really have to understand how much the environment can condition you to think in certain ways. Um, and you have to choose those ways. And the way, the reason I really sort of, so Katie suggested Slaughterhouse-Five, and then I've, I read a bunch of Vonnegut, because, like, to me, like, a lot of times I'm looking around, I'm going, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> this is, and I'm talking about the real world, right? Yeah. This is crazy. And I know that I didn't used to notice that it was crazy. Um, but now I'm like, wow. And so reading Vonnegut is like, oh, well, at least I'm not the only one. I'm, he's, he's talking about what I can see, too. So it's, it's, it feels comforting as opposed to because, you know, when you're like, well, you know, this is, this is crazy what's going on. Well, no, it's not, right? And I'm like, yeah, it is. I mean, at the beginning, he talks about uh, what the Allies did in the bombing of Dresden, which, again, is sort of this theme again from Slaughterhouse-Five, where they just turn the city into this, as they say, like drop some bombs to actually like make it so it's really, uh, the conditions are really ripe for more fire, and then drop some incendiary bombs to really get the whole place burning. And, and it's, you know, there's a bunch of civilians there. I have a question. Uh, my memory isn't too great of the Sirens of Titan or uh, Slaughterhouse Five, for that matter. But was it the Tramalfadorians or something like that? Uh, there, there's another planet, and he's talking about something like, "Oh, if only the humans just figured out how to not kill each other, right? Like we're like these other civilizations were living right. together peacefully and not killing each other." But I don't know. Yeah. Katie, do you remember? Um. I do remember they're in a. They come up again and again in a few of his novels that he that he's written. There's a lot of recurring um, characters, actually. I think Howard Campbell Jr. is in Slaughterhouse Five at some point too, and also really? uh, Bernard, oh. Bernard O'Hare or something. Yeah, if not, their names are in there, and they're in there very briefly. Cool. Yeah, little Easter egg for if someone wants to dig that one out. Yeah, I do you... remember they they experience. Different dimensions, though, so they they have access to actually go into their history, so they can re-experience it. They, which allows them to kind of not forget the atrocities of the past, and they also have the ability to to experience the future. So, whatever they are doing in the present, they fully understand how it affects their future. Perhaps if we had that as well, <laughs> things might not be so, so insane. So that reminds me of two things like that would sort of, un- I think that understanding of what you're doing now and how it projects in the future would be sort of the Buddhist idea of karma. Mm. Um, but in one of my favorite parts in, in uh, slaughterhouse five was when the, so when the main character is, he's in the bubble on tra- uh, Trafalgar <laughs> and, and like, like the, the people are showing up for the, the aliens are showing up to look at him, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, what's her name there? I can't remember the girl's character, but uh, he tries to describe time to the tra- Trafalgar. How do you say her name again, Alex? 
Is it Trophimadorians? Uh, Trophimadorians? Just, just, just I yeah. don't know. So one of the Trophimadorians is trying to explain time to the others. He's like sort of like the the the, the person who's cur- you know narrating the exhibit, right? And he describes humans' conception of time as like this this pipe that is this cast onto their head, so they <laughs> they can only see like twenty feet in front of them. They can't actually look down or look back or look anything, and it's just really. <laughs> Again, this is really convoluted, concrete metaphor to try to describe, like how we can be so blinded by our, you know, looking towards the future. Mm-hmm. Um. So, it was sort of zoomed out there, pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I think uh, like how do you if we go back like like how do you how do you get people to stop just playing for the team that seems to be most convenient for them that they can reward themselves internally for? Because mm-hmm. it takes a lot of hard work, right? To to use metacognition or to think about your own thoughts, to critically analyze all the information you're getting. It's like I'd much rather read a the title of a BuzzFeed article than inspect like a a forty page journal publication about politics or something. Like it's yeah, it's difficult to work. And uh, is it up to the individual, or maybe should there be more? <laughs> something more along the lines of what you did in your classroom, trying to talk about how to qualify claims. Maybe we need more of that in our education system or something. Uh, mm-hmm. Seems yeah. like a very big challenge, not just for Americans, but uh, worldwide. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we tend to, like, I think, avoid looking at our failures. And I think that they have the most to teach us. When the students that, that, you know, there's the students that hated me, right? Like if I would, if I, as soon as I was able to sort of like not turn it into a, well, this is just about, you know, me versus him or her. And I'm like, okay, so why? Like, like what's going on there? Or maybe the student that liked me at the beginning of the year. I mean, one student I remember, you know, really liked me at the beginning of the year, and then at the end, like, hated my class. And I was like, what, what happened there, right? And you know, I have to know that. Like, I have to own it, right? Like, it's my fault. Like, it's not the kid's fault. And once I sort of start looking around there, I can go, like, what, what possibly is there? Um, and for me, you know, a big answer is, like, well... There's not a single perspective. And like, um, like you didn't figure out how to value that kid's perspective enough. Um, and at the time, I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was for my, so if we just look at it from a school perspective, you know, there's, there's rubrics, right? We've got to have a rubric. If the student doesn't have a rubric, then how do they know what they're going to do? Right. Well, I had a student one year who wrote better papers than the rubrics. 
Mm. But they're not following directions now. So what do you do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, rubrics can be limiting in that way. It's like, I don't even use them anymore. Like, I'm not using that. <laughs> like, I'm not doing it. Because <laughs> it's like, it's like my perspective is what matters, you know? I'm mean, not going to still, if I want to right now, I can imagine it. Sorry, kiddo. Uh, this is actually a really cool paper, but you didn't follow the rubrics. So you got a B minus. What, <laughs> Hathaway? Yeah, you're going to have to do the paper over because, like, I'm too stupid to figure out that this is actually genius. And, like, my future students will benefit from it, but you're not going to benefit from it right now. Obviously, that's not what I said, but, like, that's basically what happened. And I had to just keep looking at myself going, what happened there? Like, is that... And then it's like... Um... <laughs> and... Uh, you were bringing up a piece, like, so now I'll go, like, if I'm, I'm watching this thing on addiction, and, like... Uh, so, like, typically speaking, the, the majority of addicts know or start to suspect there's a problem 10 years before they do anything about it. <laughs> so, like, if you, were to, if, you were to, if you were to put that onto, my, onto sort of my timeline as a teacher, uh, it it's actually works pretty well in that, like, I knew there was a problem around a single perspective, um, but I wasn't really able to move the addiction for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's, uh, we read the, we read this book, Infinite Jest, and uh, <laughs> it's basically a huge commentary on addiction. But right. a lot of it takes place in AA meetings, and you know, that's the first step is admit that you have a problem, right, and be be open to the idea that you failed, and be willing to look at your failures, failures, and try to take something away from them, like you said. Mm -hmm. and for for me, yeah, a lot of my learning experiences do come from really uncomfortable moments where I'm kind of confronted with myself and I think, holy crap, I did that? Or oh, why did I do that? Or even, I don't know. It's like you wish you could go back in time and not do it, but obviously that's not the case. And the only best thing to do is to behave differently uh, moving forward. And the worst thing to do is just to shove it in the back of your mind, like they do in the book where everyone's just kind of following yeah. this uh, rather than, yeah, critically just going face to face with yourself is really disturbing. I mean, people don't spend time in solitude or silence anymore. They're always on their phones or, you know, watching what's new on Netflix. There's not really a, a lot of time to get confronted with that kind of stuff. And I don't know, for me, it's just so obvious. Anytime I sit down to meditate, like all of my failures just come rushing into my mind immediately. I think there's two perspectives you can take afterwards. So when acknowledging those failures um, leads you to back early about questioning your own thoughts, questioning your own perspective. And if you don't have that time alone to kind of reflect on that, then I don't see how it could be possible to do that. Yeah. So like that totalitarian mind that uh, he's talking about and uh, that Vonnegut's talking about, and he's using sort of these extreme examples. Like if you use um, systems thinking and science as an example, like embedded in science is the idea that like the best theories, we're going to keep challenging them until we can find their limitations, mm -hmm. right? Which, which basically means everything that is conceived of by a human being is at best a simplification. So it's like, open to modification. And yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but I think it's a different way of operating. And I think that meditation from my perspective sort of is a way to that, to arrive at that conclusion, which is a healthy conclusion. And I, I think meditation can, can, you know, sort of point to some other healthy conclusions as well. But if we go back to the addiction piece, uh, there is a small sample of people who end up going into med who take meditation and they end up do it's like they go into depression and they have some really interesting reactions to um meditation which which to me is like you know it's like okay so like the only thing that seems to explain that to me is like you're shutting out you're shutting off some chemical pathways that those people can't like they're having trouble like letting go of um but like if i if i'm able to shut down and or just sort of relax and and like say like i don't know everything um you know my mistakes end up like helping me make what i do know more accurate yeah i think saying the words i don't know is really one of the smartest things you could do i mean after most of my statements today i've said i don't know like as if <laughs> <laughs> like i i lay out my claim not i try to qualify it but then at the end of it i say i don't know just because uh, I know that I could be wrong. It's just yeah. my subjective interpretation of it. But I have heard of what you're talking about, that there have been casualties from meditation and that it's not always for uh, everyone, especially meditation retreats, I think, is where it gets really dangerous for people who really need social support end up going into like a quiet, isolated place, and it, it goes really haywire. But... Yeah, that's, and, that's the beauty of science is that we can't just say, okay, meditation solves every single problem you have because it doesn't. Yeah, um, nothing. Yeah. And it might be problematic for some people. Just mm -hmm. have to be really aware of that. So you're doing more good than harm. Yeah, so like that's, that's sort of this idea that you can universalize an idea, right? Like it doesn't work that way. Like every, you know, human beings are different. Like we we share a lot we share a lot in common, but we're still each of us is a unique organism interacting with an environment, and like as that goes along, like you know some really cool things happen if you watch, um, and you let that organism be itself, um, which this totalitarianism sort of mindset doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. You've you've got to you know you've got to make everyone the same, um, you know. And so you know I, I think and, and you can see that now it's like um, it's extreme right now for us. But it's like you know you're either on the left or you're on the right. You yeah. can't you can't not be on one of them. you you can't. It's like but like there's some valid points to be made. Okay, so like. Overtaxing business can be a problem. Yes. Okay, but like uh, a distribution of wealth that is too constricted to far too few people, like that's a problem too, right? You know, they both have some some valid points. Um, and yeah, it, go ahead. It seems to be wired in us to. An attack on our group is an attack on us. So if you're 
very left-wing person and someone comes up to you and they give you evidence for gun control or something and, and immediately you just start dismissing it you won't even pay attention to it uh, there's actually a neuroscientist who you might have heard of uh, sam harris he did a neuroimaging study of this where he's actually presenting liberals with information as i just said i don't know if it was about gun control but he's basically giving them objective evidence for uh an argument that the right would be aligned with and just basically looking at what's happening in your brain when these ideas are presented to you well it turns out that your whatever networks are responsible for critical thinking that apparatus sort of goes offline and instead your you know your amygdala is going off or it's a really emotional experience for you because you feel like they're attacking your identity so just just by discussing the topic, it's like people aren't even willing to think about it critically because they already have a preconception of what life is supposed to be like according to their particular ideology. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard for me to, to like, if anyone says something bad about meditation, I'm like, okay, clearly you don't know how to meditate. <laughs> like, that's like my, that's my first instinct, which is very, uh, it's antithetical to, I think the principles of meditation. Right. Cause these are very personal issues and the book raises very personal issues too, because politics are very personal. So when someone disagrees with your views, it's taken personally instead of objectively, where you may be able to look at both sides. Yeah. So like maybe this sort of ties in a couple of things. Like it would, like I want to get to the point where disagreement's fine after understanding. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, sort of like agreement sort of is an easier venue to rapport, you know, between human beings. Um, but like, there's there's some bias there. That's that's like there's a transaction like and if you're not aware of the transaction like uh, uh you do you want me to agree with you yes i'm agreeing with you so now i'm helping you right mm -hmm. and by when i help another person like there is some biological incentive rewards for me to help other people because it's useful for us to help one another right it might and, help you back too Yes, and yeah, that yeah, it goes further. And then the other thing is, well, yeah, see, they're on my side. Like, there's this transaction that occurs, um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, except for when you're not aware of it, and you can't sort of weight your thinking and try to like like gauge that. Um, like, I don't, like, I don't think we. We don't need to agree on everything. And then if you look at it from a sci-fi perspective, so like we want, like, this is my identity. Well, zoom out and look at the planet, you know? Just one planet. You know, that's what Sagan, Carl Sagan's like, we're just, we're just little moats. We're just little specks on this moat. We're all on the same damn moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. You know, <laughs> these other ideas that separate us, <laughs> we make them up. Yeah. I know. I always get that feeling when I fly in a plane and I look out the window and I look down at how small everything looks. And it just seems like from the sky, everything looks so peaceful. Right. And, and if you took one thing away, you would, it's like <laughs> it wouldn't be that different. 
Right. Yeah, it's true. Things when you start to zoom out that far, you start to realize how, um, I guess, insignificant or some of the issues really are that seem to run our lives. You get up far enough, you can't see a you can't see a border between uh, you get up you, you look at the you can't see a border really between the United States and Canada like you can on a map, right? Right. It's made up like we all it's there because we all agree it matters, and mm-hmm. there may be some usefulness in that, but there's also some bad things in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of it for me in this book and what you just said, how it's all made up kind of comes back to the feeling of belonging somewhere, like belonging to a tribe or belonging to a group. So we have that nice little border that separates America and Canada and we all belong to the American side and everyone else on the other side belongs to the Canadian side and people are happy to belong where they belong. Usually just happy to belong somewhere. And in the book, Howard Campbell just seemed like one of the lowest people I've ever I've ever read about. <laughs> nobody knew the truth of him, so he really yeah. had nowhere to belong. Literally lived in an attic, <laughs> just to draw right. on that. And he even makes like a what did he make like a chessboard? And he realizes mm-hmm. that he has no one to play chess with. Yeah. Yes, and the the story starts out saying that he's a nationless person by inclination. So he doesn't belong to a nation purposefully. Well, it was even more absurd is that throughout the, like the second half of the book where he kind of, after he gets beaten up and then taken back to the Nazi center or wherever he is with the uh, Jones or the dentist guy, these Nazis want to help him. Like they're the only people who want to help him and everyone else hates him because they don't know what his true motivations were or what he was actually doing for the allies. And from an evolutionary perspective, it's like, okay, do you want to live and pass on your genes? Well, you better go with the Nazis to Mexico City because otherwise these crazy Americans are going to kill you. So Mm -hmm. you can, on that level, you can almost see how some people might have, uh, you know, been willing to just throw out their critical thinking apparatus just to survive. Because if you're, you're a Jew and Nazi, you'd be like, yeah, maybe I should fake my papers and become a guard or something just so i can keep having the experience of living Um, well i i think those are those are really important points and just just adding it's like you know in order to belong there's a prop that there's an inherent contradiction that 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 i think you have to sort of everyone has to see on their own that if i'm in order to belong i need to create an other yeah, and not those. They, by definition, they don't belong. So, like, I'm creating this belonging by like ostracizing someone else, mm-hmm. right? And like, if you can't see that, um, yeah, I mean, you're sort of changing a scale or a zoom. It's like okay, but but like, you know, it's fine if we're playing a team sport. But then again, like if you're playing a team sport, like you're both playing the same sport. In order to have the game, the other team has to be there, right? Mm-hmm. The player's supposed to shake hands at the end of the game. Sort of this, I think it was perhaps a historical in some ways. Like, okay, so like we had, you're right, we had this desire to belong, this desire to compete, which which oppose one another. But you know, how do we 
how do we come to terms with it and sort of create create systems that help us express both of these needs that don't end up end up creating scenarios like World War Two. Right. I really like this uh, metaphor of scaling back or you know, zooming out. It's, uh, is that what you've kind of taken away from the book before you said just reading Vonnegut made you look at everything and think it's crazy or absurd? Um, so uh, qualifiers are something I figured out and I connected to Zoom. Uh, actually, the summer before Katie was a senior. Um, so, and we tinker, you know, the basically I came about it because I was like, there's these kids that can, that can talk very well in conversations, but when you ask them to write, they don't write well. They can't even write two sentences or three sentences. They, they write their first claim and then they write a sentence. And so I just theorized that their first sentence was an absolute claim. So when they wrote their second sentence, they could see that it supported the claim, but because the claim was absolute, they could immediately see the contradictions. So then they felt like they were just wrong. And then I thought of as a teacher, like most of my career, I taught students to be very... Well, I would have used the word confident in their writing, but uh, I would actually argue now a very certain. And if you read good scientific papers, like they don't read very certainly. They like this strongly suggests they really use a lot of qualifiers. Yeah. Uh, so what Vonnegut, I mean, what he really speaks to me is he really speaks to me about like, uh, if I look at this, it's like, like I mean, he even says it like a number of these Nazis, like they're just crazy. Like they, they really can't. Like you said before, I'm not really sure you can like say they have any measure of free will. They, they were so conditioned by their environment. Um. So there's that, and then there's also, and I, and I, I think I see that. And then the other thing is, you know, sometimes I do. I just go like, this is, this world is crazy. And Vonnegut sees it, and so I feel like I, I feel like I belong. I belong to his team, right? <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> sort of recognizing this insanity. <laughs> um, but 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 with a caveat that like some people have a hard time not. Like, I guess I would say, like, I couldn't always see this, right? Like, I couldn't, like, a, I, a lot of times, if I was a kid and someone was protesting, um, I mean, I grew up in the Burlington area. Like, there were some protests, protesting apartheid on the campus at UVM. And I remember driving by with my friends, be like, oh, you guys should go, go back to, go back to your dorms, you rich turds, or something like that. And now I'm just like, that's, like, why you idiot. That's free speech. They're protesting something that was worth protesting, and you couldn't even see it because 
a lot of the adults in your world were telling you that, well, those students shouldn't be doing that. And so I just believed them, right? And it's yeah. a small scale. I think that's why Vonnegut's writing is so powerful. It's because he has been in the middle of this chaos. I mean, he, the fact that he has actually in that locker in Dredson and had these real experiences that are, are just unfathomable to me. I think that gives him the authority and the credibility to take what he's saying seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it again goes goes experience. back to the goes back to the theme of being able to look at things that are uncomfortable. Right? Like there's actually a, a really powerful example of this in the book, and it's the doctor that lives below him, or he gets like a cut on his hand or something. He goes down and uh, the mother of the doctor kind of suspects that he is actually Howard Campbell Jr., the Nazi propaganda guy. And the doctor's just like, let's just forget about it. Like, let's not think about it anymore. We can't think about it because it's, you know, it's over. Let's just live our lives now. Can we just live or whatever he says? Yeah. And the, the mother's not willing to let it go. She's like, no, we must never forget. And we must really talk about this and, and have a dialogue and say being a Nazi is bad and not just dismiss it, but keep it at the forefront of our minds uh, for moving forward so that doesn't happen again. Yeah. And in the end, uh, who you just mentioned, the woman, that doctor's mother, is the woman that Howard uh, went to to sort of confess and seek justice for what he believed he did so wrong. He went to them, and so she kind of got to, uh, you know, put him away. And before he, before he left, she leaned in and said what she would hear all the time in the concentration camp, which was she said it in German, but it was um, corpse carriers to the to the guardhouse or something like that. So she, it was yeah. still very fresh in her mind after all of those years. Right. And I know this has been a longer, longer than an hour at this point, so I wanted to maybe just end on the ending of the book, and maybe you can get your your take on that. But basically, at the end of the book, he he's on trial for the crimes he's committed, and the only thing that's going to get him absolved of his crimes, or uh, whatever the legal terminology is, uh, is to have the guy who recruited him say that yes, in fact, he was a spy, and he gets three letters, and like two of them are, I don't know, random spam letters or something from the Nazi magazine. I can't remember what they were, but one of them actually is from the guy, and he's like, "Yeah, like whatever, uh, you're good to go. We'll save you, and they'll, they'll let you go or something." And he doesn't like that, and he ends up killing himself. So I'll let you guys <laughs> take it from there and talk about that. Maybe even flip to the last page of the book and read it again if you want. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to bring up just the the concept of does the end justify the means, of which is a question a lot of people ask about warfare. Did everything that happened during war justify the ending to it? And hopefully you want to say yes. I'm, but obviously that isn't the case. And so with this book, does the end justify the means after he went through all this trouble to tell to write his memoir and tell the truth? And then he kills himself in the end. So that's just a question, I think. Does the end justify the means? 
keep so means and ends be can you get states explain that precisely what, what do you mean by that katie yeah yeah so does the means and the end so the means would be everything that you had to go through to get to the end yeah. so in terms of warfare did every battle that you that was fought during the war does it justify the end does it can you look right. back and say that yes it was worth fighting this war um and i just wonder that same kind of question about um, how Campbell Jr. and how he felt about his life, and also this is book in general. He kind of told the truth, and then maybe he could have been found out as being an honest man, but he didn't live long enough to see that. So, I guess, like he he mentions earlier, they have a discussion with well the the guy that recruits him as to be the spy, um, who wrote the letter who actually gets so that he's not convicted at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the name's like his blue fairy godmother. Like that's the letter that Alex was talking about. Mm-hmm. So he gets that letter, so he's not going to be convicted of war crimes, right? So like now he knows he's going to go free again. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? He kills himself. Like if he doesn't, what what is what if he doesn't kill himself? Then, like, what's the point of the book? Right, because the whole time he was sitting in the in the prison cell, he believed he was going to die anyway. And sort of reading it, that's what you believed that he would be executed. Okay. So I I guess like he. Earlier in the earlier, he's talking with the blue fairy godmother when uh, um, Campbell finds out that his wife is dead, mm-hmm. and like the blue fairy godmother is the guy that sets him up to be the spy, and he, he's really worried that Campbell's going to kill himself once he finds out that his wife is dead, mm-hmm. and um, Campbell says, "I should have." I should have killed myself when I found out that my wife was dead. Mm. And like uh, being a playwright, like I should have known that that was, that was like, I would have been faithful to who I was if I had done that. Like he lived his life, right? This nation of two. Right. But then he doesn't do it. Like he doesn't kill himself and he keeps playing the charade. And Vonnegut more or less says like, this guy knows this is all a charade. Most of the other people don't know it's a charade, right? And he's playing along. And so at the end, like, they still won't punish him. So, like, in my mind, like, he's got he's to kill himself because, like, like he, who is he, right? Like, he's just a fake. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it sort of reminds me of the ending of the boy in the striped pajamas. I didn't read the book, but I saw the movie, you know? I don't know if you've seen that. But the little German the boy. A long time ago. The little German boy makes friends with the little Jewish boy. His father's the prison, like the commandant of this Nazi concentration camp. And, and at the end, the, the little boy goes to help, the German boy goes to help the Jewish boy find his father in the camp, and the both of them end up um, in the ovens, right? Mm. 
and to some degree it's horrifying but on the other degree it's like there's no there's no other way for that book to movie to end that story to end mm-hmm. like it has to be it has to be a tragedy I don't know. That's the way I feel. I'm speaking very absolutely now, though. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm a little more optimistic, and I think you know why not just survive and live to tell the tale? Like, obviously, he wrote the book, so he already did that. But it, wasn't there something he could do to benefit humanity rather than just checking out? Or was it? Does that really what gave him solace or peace? He wanted to. He wanted to take responsibility for his actions because he feels badly about the way he behaved mm-hmm. but uh, personally I, I wasn't like i wasn't mad at the end i was like oh well <laughs> the, i mean there's so many kind of plot twists in there that that one i think was one of the least surprising ones or, uh, yeah. yes that's true i think it's also important to know that the book ends with a question in it's german for goodbye but there's a question mark after okay. it so that's interesting as well yeah, and they say that a hanging man uh, hears gorgeous music, or as a man's hanging, or something. And he's like, mm-hmm. "Well, too bad I'm tone deaf." <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, one of the nice things I think about Vonnegut in his sort of dark humor. He, there's the darkness, but there's also the humor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> doesn't feel quite so bleak. <laughs> well, thank you for recommending this book. I have. I didn't even hear of it until uh, Katie. You mentioned it in the list of books to talk about. Yes, I still have a long list of Kurt Vonnegut books still to read, but every single one that I've read uh, by him could have a conversation this long and longer about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I uh, I never would have got to it if uh, Katie had House Five. So, well, thanks a lot. It's been a yeah. good chat. Yeah, yes, thank you. Off Widershin. <laughs> until <laughs> until next time. Yeah. All right.